my brothers and my sisters, I am here and I am honored and privileged. I'm Reverend Tony Lee and I'm here with Brother Brian Stevenson, um, just a world-renowned lawyer um, and, 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 and the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. Brother Stevenson, how are you today, sir? I'm well. I'm really blessed to have this opportunity to be with you. Well, now I want to tell you um, that I am a groupie, um, and so I don't know how that sounds, but I, I mean, but I am a fan, and I am um, really privileged to be able to kind of talk with you today, um, and, 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 and what it is, our church has what we call a Distinction of Hope Award, um, and this is an award we give to people who we believe are making Black history now, um, and, and we've given this award to folks like... Um, um, Mayor Marion Barry, um, to Council, um, to Congressman Elijah Cummings, um, to Reverend Jesse Jackson, to Elsie Scott, to Denise Roloff Barnes, um, to did just several folks who we really feel have just had a significant impact for African Americans in the nation who we've been blessed to give this to over the years. Um, and we wanted to be able to honor you for the work that you are doing. Now, I know you've gotten a lot of awards down through the years, and so I know you don't need another one. Um, I can look back behind you and see all those awards there. <laughs> um, so I know you don't need another plaque or another certificate, um, but um, we do believe in honoring those who are worth honor. Um, but also, um, we believe in exposing our congregation and exposing the world to those who are doing the kind of work because we believe that um, it really can um, help inspire another generation of folks. So um, if you don't mind, can you tell us just a little bit about your work at the Equal Justice Initiative? Sure. Well, I want to first begin by just uh, saying um, how grateful I am for this honor and this recognition. Um, as someone who grew up in the AME Church, um, the first award I ever got was when I was 16, and it was a Richard Allen Award at a wow. conference for the AME Church. <laughs> You know, I grew up at the end of the civil rights era at a time when, you know, black kids couldn't go into public spaces and actually <clears throat> have opportunities that white kids had. I started my education in a colored school. Uh, and it was only, you know, when I was a little bit older that the public schools opened up. And so it was in the black church. And for me, it was the AME church in particular where I had an opportunity to find my voice and to do things. And, you know, it was the only place where you could do something and people would applaud you and encourage you and affirm you for what you had done. And in a country like ours, where affirming the value and the achievements of Black people has not always been easy, I was grateful for that encouragement, for that inspiration and that support. And so it is no small thing for me uh, to be recognized uh, by the AME Church through your church for this. And so I, I want to express my, my gratitude for that. Um, the Equal Justice Initiative is a private nonprofit organization in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, we've been here for over 30 years. And we provide legal services to people uh, on death row. We provide legal services to people who have been wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced in our jails and prisons. And, you know, this work kind of grew out of my own experience, uh, starting with segregation, as I said, uh, in my county, uh, which was actually on the Eastern shore, mm. there were no high schools for black kids when my dad was a teenager. He couldn't go to high school in our county. So lawyers came into our community, made them open up to public schools. And because of that intervention, that enforcement of Brown versus Board of Education, I got the opportunity 
uh, to go to high school and, and then I went to college and then I went to law school and I wanted to use the same power those lawyers use to create opportunities for me to create opportunities for other people. If you had a vote in my county when we were talking about ending racial segregation, we would have lost the vote. The county was only 20 some percent black and the majority of white people didn't want uh, integrated schools. But these lawyers were able to use the rule of law to achieve this outcome that created opportunity and justice and equality. And I wanted to do the same thing when I came out of law school in the 1980s. It was clear to me that the space where there were tremendous needs uh, was in our criminal justice, that criminal legal system where the prison population had grown from about uh, 200,000 in the 1970s to 2.2 million today. And I just felt called, to be honest, to respond to the crisis that was being created by over-incarceration, 6 million people on probation or parole, 70 million Americans with criminal arrest histories, which means that they have difficulty getting jobs or getting loans, this tremendous increase in the number of women being sent to jails and prisons, an 800% increase in the last 25 years knowing that 80% of these women were single parents with minor children and their children were gonna have their lives disrupted by this legacy. And then I think seeing data like the Bureau of Justice in 2001 projecting that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, knowing that I just felt called to respond to that. And so the Equal Justice Initiative uh, is providing these legal services. And then the other thing we do is we're very engaged in narrative work and trying to push our country uh, to confront the history of racial injustice. Because even though I'm a product of Brown, about 15 years ago, it became clear to me that I don't think we could win Brown versus Board of Education today. My I don't goodness. Yeah, I don't think our courts today would do anything that disruptive on behalf of disfavored people. I just don't think they would. And that just challenged me to recognize that we're gonna to have to get back out of court and get into community spaces and get the church active the way it was in the 50s and get uh, educational spaces and cultural spaces talking about the legacy of this history in a new and different way. And that's been our work for the last 15 years and is what has led us to create these cultural institutions uh, that we operate now in Montgomery. Now, I, I think what, something you said um, about uh, uh, getting us engaged again like we were in the 50s and the 60s. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because especially within this last year, um, we have seen a generation attempting to find its voice in protest. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we learned from the 50s and 60s that most folks don't talk about from the civil rights era um, is the civil rights era was not just protest, um, but there was also legal strategy that was shaped out. So it was protest, it was policy, but it was also setting legal precedents. They would win small cases because they had a bigger case in mind years yeah. down the road. And so they would be kind of getting these small precedents, et cetera. What would you say to a young person right now who is finding their voice in this moment um, dealing with uh, some of the systemic issues of racism and, 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 and the injustice system at times uh, about thinking about law as one of the tools in the toolbox of activism? Yeah, I, I think it's really critical. I appreciate your question because I think you're right. I don't think we've emphasized enough how strategic and tactical and uh, thoughtful uh, civil rights leaders were to achieve the outcomes that we were trying to achieve. And, and it's worth kind of remembering that uh, you know, we had 
uh, black people had survived two and a half centuries of slavery. And at the end of slavery, there wasn't a change in power, right? The, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Racial hierarchy and, and white supremacy was still shaping the lives of black people. And even though they had been emancipated in some ways, they were still contending with all of these threats. And we lived through a century of terrorism and violence where black people were pulled out of their homes and beaten and drowned and tortured and taunted and lynched on courthouse lawns and they couldn't vote and we were denied opportunities. And so it was coming out of this era that leaders in the 1950s did something quite strategic and brilliant and courageous. And that was organizing approaches to challenging segregation, challenging racial hierarchy, challenging white supremacy that use both activism and protests and nonviolence and the law. And so when Rosa Parks didn't refuse to give up her seat uh, in 1954 and, and Dr. King and, and hundreds of other black folks in this community began to boycott, they knew that Fred Gray and some lawyers were filing a lawsuit on behalf of five black women who had also been victimized on the buses, and that that lawsuit was going to make its way to the United States Supreme Court. There'd actually been litigation in South Carolina two years before that, and they understood that. They knew that uh, the white people in Montgomery were never just going to say, oh, you know what, you're right. You should be able to sit wherever you want. But they knew that if they were active, if they put on their Sunday best and went to places and prayed and protested, if they were strong, if they were unified, they'd create a dynamic around this that would make it easier for the court to do what they should have done a century ago, which is to say basic equality requires an end to this kind of discrimination. And it was the confluence of those two things. Uh, the leaders of the boycott didn't call off the boycott until the United States Supreme Court struck down uh, the uh, requirements, the, the, the policies that allowed them to justify putting Black people in the back of the bus. Browder versus Gale with the U.S. Supreme Court decision that allowed the boycott to succeed. And that became a template for activism over the next century. Activism, you know, to get an end to discrimination uh, in, in public transportation. The Freedom Riders were implementing Brown, Boynton versus Virginia, a Supreme Court case that said you can't exclude people, Black people, based on race when they're traveling through the interstates. Uh, Dr. King and others were uh, active uh, to get the Civil Rights Act. Uh, when people talk about the Selma, the Montgomery March and, and, and Bloody Sunday and all of that, but that was about achieving a Voting Rights Act that was then enacted. And so that strategic effort was at the heart of this. And so we do need lawyers and we do need activists. And just understand it was clergy. Uh, you know, Ms. Parks, Mrs. Parks was a seamstress. Joan Robinson was a teacher. Edie Nixon was a Pullman porter. It was all of these people bringing whatever their skills and knowledge was together that allowed this uh, to succeed. Not just lawyers, not just clergy, but everybody. And uh, we're still living at a time. <clears throat> you know, the difference between what we're doing in the United States versus what happened in, say, South Africa. At the end of apartheid, power shifted. You know, you had a black majority take over governance in South Africa. You know, I compare what's happening in, in Germany, uh, you know, at the end of the World War II, the Germans lost. You know, there wouldn't be a Holocaust memorial in Berlin if the Germans had won. Uh, you know, Germany is a country where you don't see any Adolf Hitler statues. That wouldn't be the case had the Germans won. There was a change in power and because the Allies won and things had, 
we're trying to create justice in this country without that change in power. You know, black people are not the majority of this country. And that's why our voice has had to rely on a kind of moral clarity, a kind of witness, the kind of strategy that civil rights leaders perfected in the 1950s and 60s. It's why we've needed art and entertainment and clergy. We've had to appeal in, uh, to, the, to the soul of this nation in ways that uh, other uh, communities have not. Uh, but that, that is critical for me, is to have a strategic approach that involves all of the skills that we can marshal together. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Reverend Tony Lee. I'm talking to Brian Stevenson. Now, now Brother Stevenson, you talked about um, also many of the Supreme Court cases and the kind of things that had to happen. And I know that you have presented before the Supreme Court at least six times. Um, and I know that, uh, and it's been around a range of things and you've done some work even around young people. Can you kind of talk about some of the cases that you've presented about um, in, in a way that can be helpful for us? Sure, yeah. Well, I, you know, I've been very concerned about uh, the demonization of, of, of our children in particular. I mean, we're in a kind of a narrative struggle in this country. The reason why we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world is because we had a generation of politicians that were preaching what I call the politics of fear and anger. They wanted to govern us through fear and anger. And so in the 1970s, they said that people who are drug addicted and drug dependent are criminals, and we need to put them in the criminal justice system. Now, they should have said that people suffering from addiction and dependency have a health problem, and we need a healthcare response to that. But they use this other approach. And, and a lot of my work has been pushing back against these narratives of fear and anger. And the way that played out for children was that we had criminologists going around in the 80s arguing that some children aren't children. They said that some kids look like kids and act like kids, but they're not kids. They came up with a new label. They said, these aren't children. They said, these are, quote, super predators. And that label was used to demonize a generation of kids, mostly black and brown kids. And the country responded by lowering the minimum age for trying children as adults. We began putting very young kids in our adult uh, system. Uh, we created this pipeline from schoolhouses to jailhouses where we started arresting five and six-year-old children for behavioral issues. We started criminalizing young kids uh, who fell down, who made mistakes. And, and for me, it was necessary to challenge that because I am persuaded that a society that says it cares about its children cannot judge itself by looking at how well it treats talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids. Our commitment to children has to be expressed by how we treat poor kids, abused kids, neglected kids, kids who have made mistakes. And so we started challenging these extreme sentences. We have 13 states in America that have no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. So I represent nine and 10 year old kids sometimes who are facing you know, 50 years in, in prison. I've represented 13 and 14 year old kids in the state of Maryland uh, who are being confronted with adult prosecution. And so we started challenging that and we won some cases at the Supreme Court banning these life without parole sentences for, for children convicted of non-homicide offenses. And then we won a case banning um, uh, all life without, all mandatory life without parole sentences for children. And it's been a real thrill for me to see these young people who were told, and, and you think about what we did in this country. We said to some 13-year-old child that you're, you're fit only to die in prison. What kind of society says that to its children? And so it's been really gratifying for me to see these sentences overturned. And now I've got a whole community of people who were told they were going to die in prison and they're out doing remarkable things, talking and educating and leading and, and contributing to the health of the community. And 
And that's what's, uh, you know, that's what's been really precious about that work on that issue for me. Now, you've mentioned several times in our conversation narrative. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about how you all don't, just don't do work in the courts, but you're doing narrative work. And you talked about the importance of narrative. Can, can you kind of dig into that a little bit for us? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, we debate issues all the time. People are debating immigration, they're debating public safety, they're debating all kinds of things. But underneath the debates, there are narratives that shape the way people hear things and, and people think about things. And we have to change some of those narratives. And so much of our work is about changing this narrative of racial difference that we have inherited in this country. I don't think we're free in America. I think everybody is burdened by this long history of racial injustice. And it doesn't matter whether you live in Maryland or Mississippi or California or New York, you live in this country, you live in a space where this long history of racial injustice has created a kind of pollution and we breathe it in and it creates distrust and conflict that makes us all unwell. And so we think we have to change this narrative. We have to talk about things we haven't talked about before. I think we have to talk about the fact that we're a post-genocide society. Uh, what we did to indigenous people when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. Millions of indigenous people died through famine and war and disease. And we've never really acknowledged that. We made up a narrative that said, oh no, those people are different. Those native people, they're savages. And we use that kind of rhetoric to justify the violence. And we created a constitution that talked about equality and justice for all, but we didn't apply those values, those principles to this population. And that narrative of racial difference is what got us comfortable with two and a half centuries of slavery. And I often argue that the great evil of American slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude in the forced labor, it was this narrative we created that black people aren't as good as white people that black people aren't fully human, that black people aren't fully evolved, that black people are less deserving, less capable, less worthy. And that narrative, uh, which was used to create this ideology of white supremacy, that was the true evil of American slavery. And we fight the Civil War, but, but the narrative doesn't go unchallenged, uh, goes unchallenged. And that's why I've argued that we passed the 13th Amendment that talks about ending involuntary servitude and forced labor, but says nothing about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And that's why I maintain that slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. It turned into that era where lynching and torment and trauma uh, of black people, thousands of black people uh, killed in this systematic way, lawlessness. And we haven't really confronted the demographic geography of this country and its relationship to this era of terror. Older people of color come up to me sometimes, they say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry. When I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with domestic terrorism for the first time after 9-11. So we grew up with terrorism. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced our whole lives. And until we understand that the Black people in Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland and Minneapolis didn't go to those communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities, but instead went to these communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. Until we understand that, we're not going to be equipped to meet the challenges of the urban North and West in a meaningful way. And that presumption of dangerousness and guilt that greeted Black people when we came to this continent in 1619 is still with us. And despite the courageous activism of Dr. King and Mrs. Parks and Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others in the 50s and 60s, we're still living in a nation where if you're Black or Brown, it doesn't matter whether you are a pastor, 
of a leading church. It doesn't matter if you're an elder, you can be a choir director, you can be a professional athlete, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a teacher. But if you're black or brown, you will go places in this country where you have to navigate a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And I can tell you that as you get older, I, as I've gotten older, it's exhausting. You get tired. And so for me, it's become urgent to change this narrative. I believe we need an era of truth and justice in America. I really do. And I just believe that until we commit to truth telling, we're not going to see the kind of justice. And actually, this is what I've learned growing up in the AME church. In my church, uh, you couldn't come in and say, I want redemption. I want salvation. I want all of that good stuff. But I'm not going to admit to anything. I'm not going to confess to anything. The preacher would tell you it doesn't work like that. Preach would tell you that if you want redemption and salvation, you first have to repent. You have to confess. And this country needs an era where we confess to the multiple ways in which we have failed to be the just society we claim to be. We're going to have to repent for all of these structural and systematic things we have done to create racial hierarchy and white supremacy. We're going to have to acknowledge it. And I, I want us to do it not because I'm just trying to make people feel bad. I, I'm not interested when I talk about slavery and lynching and segregation in punishing America. That's not my goal. My goal is liberation. That comes from my faith. I believe that there is something better waiting for us, you know, and you know in the church, we do what we do because we believe that people who are struggling, who are bound by sin and despair and destruction, we want them to get to something better. And that's what I want for this country, but I don't think we can get there until we commit to this truth and reconciliation, truth and restoration, truth and reparation. And for me, these things are sequential. That's what my faith teaches me, is that you got to tell the truth before you get to all of that good stuff. And that's the challenge that I think we have to face in America today. Now, I, I think um, as you've kind of, and you've dug into the faith aspect and you've dug into um, AME and, and shout out to Prospect AME Church. They did a great job. <laughs> well, um, thank you. <laughs> with you. Um, I guess my question for you is, so that we understand this narrative, this what that, that kind of bolsters white supremacy also has theological underpinnings. Um, and, and so um, it has, you know, very Christian underpinnings. White supremacy has very Christian underpinnings and not just in our past, but in our current. Yeah. And so if you're looking at kind of this schism between the church right now that um, played itself out just um, this, on the public stage, especially within the Trump administration, et cetera, um, in, in which you have um, folks who literally kind of are holding on to a lot of this theology that mm -hmm. continues to affirm and support white supremacy, um, what do you see as the role of the church, one, um, in this moment to try to navigate that? And two, um, I, I, I'm really excited because you keep mentioning your AME upbringing. Yeah. How has that foundation been able to help you understand and not buy into the white supremacist Christocentric narrative mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that so fuels um, not just this nation, but the justice system in this nation, et cetera? Yeah, well, I mean, those are really important, powerful questions. I, I think, you know, uh, the, the church in this country is in a crisis because for too long, uh, the church, and I'm speaking specifically about the white church, has been allowed to stay silent. So during that era of enslavement, uh, those people who were enslaving Black people, who were brutalizing Black people, 
were going to church and celebrating their faith like they were good Christians. And in fact, that's the reason why they had to create this narrative of racial hierarchy, because they wanted to feel moral and just and Christian. So they had to create this fiction that black people aren't really people. And that's a lie. We know from the gospels, we know from uh, the testaments that, that there is no uh, hierarchy of human value, hierarchy. And in fact, the life of Jesus was spent serving and lifting up those who had been marginalized and disfavored. There's no way to reconcile this fiction that black people are less than white people when you read the, when you read the gospels. And so that era of Christianity failed to do what it should have done, which is to come honest, to repent. Then we had a, a century of terrorism and Jim Crow, and it's the same thing. You know, there were black people lynched in front of white churches where the clergy were complicit in torturing black people uh, who had done nothing to justify that violence. We have to repent for that. We need to acknowledge that. And then we had the civil rights era where you had a white clergy saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. You cannot reconcile that with Christianity. You can't. And so now, uh, having moved into this most recent era, there's still been an absence of confession, an absence of repentance. And what, what I know is that until we do that, until we resurrect truth, we will not get free. And so now we're in a moment of crisis. And I think the church has to have the courage to do what it has failed to do if it wants to create any uh, integrity, any meaning. And, and growing up in the black church, growing up uh, you know, and you know these stories. I, I, I mean, just uh, what I learned as a child was, you know, Richard Allen wanted to have faith uh, equal to anyone else's, but he was made to sit in the balcony. They didn't welcome Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, and there was something wrong with rejecting their faith because of their color. And that narrative shaped my view. And, and um, I think what's important for people of faith uh, particularly within the Black church, is that we have to remember that it is our faith, it is our hope that has sustained us. And that's, my great-grandfather was enslaved in Virginia, and he learned to read as a child because he wanted to understand uh, the Bible, he wanted to understand faith, you know, we have this long history of this, and he learned to read, and when emancipation came, my grandmother said he would read the newspaper every night for formerly enslaved people so they would understand what's going on, and that hope, that faith, he had a hope that one day he'd be free, even though there was nothing about him that made that rational. And that faith is what sustained him. And we had hope and faith at the beginning of the 20th century that one day we could move about without the threat of mob lynching. And that hope sustained us. I think about the Black people in Montgomery, on whose shoulders I stand, people who would put on their Sunday best and go paces uh, and, and get on their knees knowing that they'd get battered and blooded and beaten, but they went anyway. They did so much more with so much less, and that was rooted in faith. And so, yes, that's what sustains me. I, my faith has taught me that not only do we have to understand what God calls us to, but we also have to understand that in this society, some of us are going to have to stand even when people say sit down. Some of us are going to have to speak even when people say be quiet. It is that witness that has allowed me to at least insist on Proclaiming the whole truth, you know, Micah, that proverb in Micah 6 and 8, when the question is asked, what does God, what is, what does God require of us? You know, I take it to heart what the prophet says. And what he says is that we do justice, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly with him. And I just think that to do justice means to repudiate injustice, is to reject inequality, 
and injustice. To love mercy uh, means that we have to give away all of this anger and fear and, and over-incarceration and execution and punishment that we've adopted. And to walk humbly with God means that we have to be willing to acknowledge when we fail, acknowledge when we fall. And this country does a lot of things well, but we don't do apology very well. We don't do admission and confession very well. And that has to change. And the church has to lead that change if we're really going to get to the healthy, just society that many of us see. Brother Stevenson, I, 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 one other question I have for you. I have about two more questions, and yeah. I promise not to keep you all day. Um, but, but one of the things that I'm very interested in hearing from you, so the work that you have done with the Equal Justice Initiative, um, you've been highlighted, whether it's on the movie Just Mercy, um, and, 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 and highlighted even with the HBO documentary, and just a, a, a few different places. Um, in watching those things, so one of the things that caught me as a pastor was the heaviness of your work mm -hmm. um, because you're walking along a journey with people and, and, and I was amazed by the number of people that you all have been able to see uh, uh, at least 135 wrongly convicted prisoners, probably more now, but that's just the latest number I have. But you've also had to deal with the fact that some of the people you represented didn't get let go mm -hmm. and they were on death row and were executed. Um, Talk a little bit about um, the challenge of the work, um, standing with people um, in the celebrations, but also in the moments that um, the system doesn't do right by them, yeah. even though the system should do right by them. And, and not just the challenge of dealing with the system. Um, sometimes people miss the personal challenge or the yeah. personal weight that it takes to do this kind of work. Um, yeah. And so if you could just kind of talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I've been an advocate of this. Um, I didn't think I could help get people off death row. I didn't think I could help children sentenced to die in prison. I didn't think I could help respond to the trauma and the grief and the suffering I've seen in poor black communities around this country unless I was all in. Unless I was going to be fully present in the lives of my clients and the communities and the people I served. And a lot of people said, well, don't, you can't be all in because that's going to be a, that'll crush you, that'll hurt you. And uh, I, I guess I'm a witness to the proposition that when you are all in, you do feel things that you might not otherwise feel. You see things you might not otherwise see. You hear things. And there will be tears and there will be moments where you get pushed and, and shattered. I, I, I stood next to a man, my first in 1980, right after we had opened, uh, there was a man who called me and said, Mr. Stevenson, I've got an execution date. They're going to execute me in 30 days. And we had just opened, didn't have books and computers. And he said, will you please represent me? And I said, look, I don't have capacity to take on any case right now. You, I'm sorry. And he hung up and I didn't sleep well. And he called me the next day. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I know what you said about not having your books and your computers. But he said, uh, I don't think I can make it if there's no hope at all. You got to tell me you're going to represent me. You don't even have to tell me you can win. But so I said, yes, of course. And we tried and we tried and we couldn't get a stay. And I went to be with that man before his execution. And it was so painful to see this man uh, have the hair shaved off of his body so he would be a better conduit of the electricity they were going to pump into him to kill him. And we had this conversation and he was telling me that that when he woke up that morning, the guard said, what can we do to help you? He said, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? Do you want 
a coffee? Do you want water? Do you need stamps? Do you need access to the phone? All day long, he said, Brian, people have been saying, what can they do to help me? I never will forget him saying, he said, it's been so strange. He said, more people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life? Mm. They ever did in the first 19 years of my life. And I was holding that man's hands and I was so emotional. I was thinking, yeah, where were they when you were three and your mom died? Where were they when you were seven and you were being abused? Where were they when you were a teenager experimenting with drugs? Where were they when you came back from war traumatized? And those questions resonating in my mind, they pulled that man away and strapped him into an electric chair and they executed him. And when I left, I did not think I could make it. I did not think I could go back. But it, it is because I have an awareness of what people have done before me that I knew that I could find that strength. You know, that scripture, Paul writes about this in, in, in Corinthians when he talks about being challenged and, and persecuted. And he writes, you know, he asked God to take away the thorn in his side and the response uh, was, uh, no, 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 my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. And I have relied on that scripture. Uh, I now have an understanding of what the scripture means when it says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And God's grace has been sufficient for me to be in places that have been difficult and painful. And what blesses me is to know that uh, if I do what I'm called to do and others do what they are called to do, each generation uh, will have to do less of what I've had to do. My, my parents and grandparents had to suffer the humiliation of segregation and Jim Crow. They'd see those signs that said white and colored. They weren't directions. They were assaults. They had to bear the injuries of those assaults. We've got a generation now that hasn't had to experience that kind of degradation. And, and, and on it goes. And that's what I think God's grace allows us to do. Uh, so in that respect, uh, you know, I feel fortunate and blessed to have been raised by people who have, have taught me to understand the power of grace and the power of love and the power of redemption, just so that you can endure in those moments uh, when things feel to seem so overwhelming and so, uh, so crushing. So Brother Stevenson, this is Reverend Tony Lee. I'm with Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, I have a term that I say um, that um, I know in the regular world you have what are first responders. Um, I believe in this season we have a group of faith responders, um, people who are not necessarily clergy, but out of a faith foundation are doing what they do. Um, and I believe, sir, and I will say it, and, and I'm not the first to say it, um, but you are a modern civil rights hero. Um, and, and Black History Month, uh, that's why we want to celebrate you uh, because of the kind of work you're doing, um, that you have risked yourself personally, um, you have risked yourself emotionally, mentally, um, but you have uh, fought and continue to fight the good fight for our people. And for that, I am grateful. But my, um, my question for you as I close up is, what would you say are what are ways that people who are watching who are listening can engage in the fight um, what are ways one that adults who are watching and listening can engage in the fight now what are ways that young people who are inspired by what you're saying uh either engage or as well prepare to engage um to be um used in this battle yeah well first of all thank you for those uh, for those kind words, uh, 
I feel like I'm back in prospect with the minister saying, you just keep, keep on keeping on. And so <laughs> I, um, I do think that we all have to step up our readiness, our preparedness, our capacity to meet the challenges that we're facing. We've opened uh, two sites in Montgomery, the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And I wanna invite everybody who is part of your community to come and see us in Montgomery, to make the journey, to, to, to rather than to kind of stay away from the spaces where so much of this history is, is raw and challenging. I want them to embrace it. I want them to come. I want them to make the pilgrimage. Because I think when you spend time in these truth-telling spaces, it empowers you uh, to be agents of truth-telling in your own world, in your own spaces, in your jobs, in your schools, in your places, in your communities. And that's what I think we all have to do, is we have to um, step up and meet the challenges presented by this day. We have to end the silence. We have to speak to the things that sustain and perpetuate uh, bigotry and, and discrimination and hate. Uh, I think that's the number one challenge for adults. And, and for young people, and for adults, I think learning is an action item. Learning is the way in which we actually prepare ourselves uh, to be the agents that are agents of justice. We have a calendar. It's a, we, we, on a daily basis, we put out something about the history of racial injustice. And when people learn this content on a daily basis, they're able to talk about things in a new and different way. And I want to invite people to to, to kind of sign up for that, to begin that process of learning. Because whether you go into medicine or education or lawyering or engineering, no matter where you go, uh, that knowledge will help you navigate the challenges that you'll inevitably uh, have to face. And then finally, I just think uh, when we support one another, when we love one another, when we show mercy and love to people around us, even when they don't deserve it, we, we carry on this tradition in the Black church uh, that has represented God's grace in this very powerful way. I mean, those uh, civil rights activists who actually chose not to strike back when they were being struck. You know, I think about enslaved people had every reason to seek retaliation and retribution against those who had enslaved them, but they didn't want to give away their hearts and their souls. They didn't want to give away the things that were precious to them by submitting, by giving in to violence and, and retribution. That legacy which has been shaped uh, by the Black church, we have to honor that by embracing the opportunities to love, uh, to show mercy, to show compassion, and be committed to justice uh, whenever they present themselves. Now, how can folks uh, connect with you or find you um, on the internet, on social media? Sure. So uh, we have a website, eji.org. And if you go to our website, you can uh, sign up for that daily calendar. You can get information about the museum and the memorial. Uh, we have uh, social media, uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and all that. I'm not personally on social media, but the organization is. They do that for me. Uh, and you can follow us and all of that good stuff. But uh, I would invite everybody. We also have lots of content on our site, reports, uh, videos, um, you know, stuff that can help you if you're trying to get involved in community remembrance. And so I really do invite everybody to check out the site and go from there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Brother Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. Brother, thank you so much. This has been incredible. 
Um, I do want to send a, a thank you to Reverend Leslie Dwight, a Community of Hope's Minister of Social Justice, who helped coordinate this and organize this. She is the bomb.com. Um, but Brother Stevenson, once again, um, now I am going to uh, make sure when, when we get out of pandemic yeah. um, to organize a trip down to see you all. Um, you have you. my word on that. Um, but second, um, you have preached about three, four sermons here today. Um, <laughs> and so at some time, don't be surprised if you get an invitation for Community of Hope AMB Church <laughs> to come as <laughs> a guest speaker on a Sunday. I, I'd uh, be honored. <laughs> you have preached more sermons and more conversation than most preachers I know and given a scripture text for every single uh, piece that you did. You are a young, great AME. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I'm going to have to reach out. Um, so uh, uh, another Distinction of Hope Award winner um, is Bishop William DeVoe, AME Bishop. And so I'm going to have to tell Bishop DeVoe, Bishop, uh, we've got another great AME uh, <laughs> who's been a recipient. And he's a great preacher in his own right. Uh, but, but brother, thank you so much once again, man. We really appreciate you. We're grateful to God for your life. Um, and, and we do just want to celebrate you and pray for you. And I want you to know that we will be praying for you um, because you are a faith responder, um, that you show up on the scene, uh, but you show up with faith. Um, and therefore, you can bring hope to the hopeless. Um, it, it's, it's amazing to me um, how you are walking in the will of God and doing the work of Christ in this season. And so, sir, we celebrate and salute you. Thank you so much. Great honor. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day, all right? You too. Yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.